0: Welcome to The Last Supper, a weekly podcast featuring emerging and established artists, galleries, curators, and collectors in Asia. Hello, I'm your podcast host Oscar Van Huis. In this episode, I traveled to the new territories in Hong Kong where I met artist and art educator Jeff Lam in her studio in Tan. We spoke about her fond childhood memories of growing up in mainland China, how a bet in a Chinese restaurant in New York promoted her to make art grappling with her imposter syndrome, her determination, and at the end, we spoke about her 500 Rocks of the Monkey King. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's education in-person and virtual art courses, gallery visits, and webinars. Visit Christie's education website and enter all in capital letters, Last supper 15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's education can also be found in the description of this podcast. Hello Jaffa, thank you for making this delicious tea and how are you today?
1: Uh, I'm good, thank you. And how about you, Oscar?
0: Thank you, Jaffa, I'm really well. As you can see, I came over with my audio equipment. I like to take the public transport here in Hong Kong. So I had to walk a short while from the train to your studio. And luckily, I'm wearing a T-shirt and my shorts because it's a really humid, hot day today in Hong Kong.
1: But I like your cap, Lam, A-do, uh, Lamar Island. Uh, you look like a islander anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, really? Describe to me what an islander looks like.
1: I feel like, you know, this is a very casual. Either we call that is like neighborhood. And then, but you are come from all the way from another island to here, new territories. And I feel like, uh, but you're still like my neighbor. I feel like uh, you, maybe you just uh, come up from another block of this building. And that is good because usually people come here always uh, with a sneaker or, you know, kind of like a suit, you know, come here. Um, But anyway, welcome here.
0: Yes, I do wear a baseball cap that says Lama Island in Chinese. And I am very casual today, not only because it's a public holiday, but most of the time I wear a casual outfit to make people feel more comfortable and at ease. So what I wear today is really my daily outfit. It's very casual and non-formal. And thanks for inviting me to your studio today, Jaffa. Just before we began this recording, you mentioned that you don't have that many visitors and you have cleaned your place to welcome me today. So first of all, thank you for tidying up your studio. And describe to me the location where we are recording this.
1: You say clean, or I feel like okay, it's not that clean actually. But anyway, this is a four-town area. It's uh, very close to the public house now. Everything's uh, it's getting to change because uh, more ordinary people come in. Because uh, it used to be like only worker here. I mean, worker really work here, industrial worker, and those uh, artists. But now it's more like a citizen residency here. I feel like uh, it's more vibrant right now. Also, I witnessed all the changes here. I'm quite happy to be here. And I still can have my mountain view so far, but I don't know when it will disappear. Because uh, now you see from this angle, you can still see the mountain. Uh, That is my best seat over there, uh, sitting on the staircase and look up. And for my meditations or for even for my phone call, because that is a place is a best place for the receive the signal. But another side that is a new public house. So I feel like um sometimes i when I sit in there, I also doubt of myself, am I in dream? You know, this is a nowhere, and then suddenly some people come. Just like my studio was like uh, only me along with all the materials and the storage. So after Basel, a lot of people come. So I have to tidy up a little bit. At least people can come in without dust. But still, uh, I haven't cleaned uh, my wood shop inside.
0: (laughs) To me, it looks perfectly clean, Jaffa. Let's have a look at your studio because I see a lot of really fascinating objects in your studio such as wood blocks, metal scraps, fabrics and many other items on the high shelves along the wall. One object next to me appears to be some kind of wooden tree and right behind you is this humongous wooden ball hanging from the ceiling which looks extremely heavy but by just looking at it I can't really tell. It's not that
1: heavy because it's hollow inside and the diameter is uh, my size 1.53 I always say that is one of my coffin another one is uh, right there and next to the door is a square not the box so that is also my size my height and my width so that is uh, represent me to go around the world so that is uh, called lady tree in travel so here is a kind of like mainly for wood and storage for everything. And also I did the, like a small metal models here. Also I have paperwork also here. I mean, paperwork is not the computer's paperwork. is really work in some of the work in paper. And also I did the concrete work here as well. So before you see all those uh, concrete trolleys and with the fabric, right? So concrete work made in here in this studio. And then the fabric work, I work with the Women Worker Association in Kuntong. So usually I make the fabric not in here. That is my practice because studio is not that big, but not that small, you know. People always uh, judge the scale. But I feel like uh, that is enough for me so far. Yeah.
0: Could it be that people believe you have a really large studio? Because some of your work is large, and that gives them the impression that you must have a really large space as well.
1: But, you know, uh, that is uh, what I like Hong Kong. They give me limitation. Then I create the work within this limitation. For example, like you need the big studio for the big work. And then I trying to think is how to make the big work flexible to make in small studio. So that's what the way I work, just like the, the ball. And then can you imagine that make in here, in that room? I have to shut down the room because uh, I have to separate my wood studio from outside. So And then I can do all the dusty work inside. And I only can do like half of this ball inside, and then take it out, and then do another half. And then I have to make sure every work can come out from this little door. So every time I have to measure well. Otherwise, I don't want to hang up the work from my window. Even my window is not that big. So every work is uh, like a slot, you know, can slot in, can slot out. And also wood is uh, like, you see the wood all in the, the platform. is uh, like, I always uh, take the original, the size. Because they are very treasured. I, I feel like, uh, you know, wood being cut and then they've been shaped in that scale uh, because of the crate box uh, making. So I always are uh, trying to respect the size as well. So if you see the work uh, next to me, uh, that one, the wood one, so that is original size. I don't trim smaller or bigger. I mean, not trim smaller or, or not make it bigger. So just use the original size and make the wood work like that. So that is my practice. Some people say, uh, you are so economic at using the material. And I say, yes, I try to be, you know, that is my practice even when I was very young because I'm not from like a rich family. So everything's used in the family. Mom always told me to use it until the end. So this is a like family practice. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about your background to give your work a little bit more context. You spent your very early childhood years or the first 12 years in China before you moved to Hong Kong. Describe to me what it was like to move as an early teen to a new city and trying to learn Cantonese as well.
1: I grew up in the small town, Fuding. Actually, that is a little mountain area, a grow tea, very famous for the white tea my mom was a doctor working in a hospital but because her family background is not very well I'm not very good you know, like a landlord background in China that is like lowest class and then that's why she was not sending to the city she wanted she was sending to the little town I felt like that 12 year. actually it's not really 12 years it's almost like 11 years I was there for, I think I got the most happiest uh, childhood there. I was like tracing the door, you know, and then uh, pick up the rabbit from the market and steal those melons uh, from the field. And was uh, like uh, jumping to the river anytime, pick up the rock, you know, play with the the kids. And the tree is my Good friends. So, because uh, even those uh, children in my same age, I just feel like I cannot talk to them. I always talk to the tree. And because I always uh, kind of like uh, have my dream, I'm living in the tree, you know, and I make my own place, um, secret place. And I think that is my childhood. I'm not very outspoken, children. I always uh, fight for other two little girls because they are kind of my company. So three of us, I'm the oldest one. So I always kind of like a leader and, you know, fight with the boys. But that is my life in a rural country. And then my mom come to Hong Kong that year. And I have to stay in her friend's home. And then I moved to my father's city for another almost like half year, one semester. I studied in the city for almost one year, but not enough. That is the time, I mean, that is the first time I living in the city. And then the next year, I moved to Hong Kong. So it's like quite extremely jump from rural area to the city and to the bigger city. I can even feel the smell is different. So it's very sensitive when I passed through the Lo Wu bridge that time. And I felt like, oh my God, that is Hong Kong smell.
0: Can you describe the smell of Hong Kong? Because I remembered this as well really, really clearly. I think you described the blended scent quite well. And now that I've lived in Hong Kong for quite a few years... I think I've gotten used to certain scents, but I do recall the scent of Hong Kong when I lived here for the very first few years. It was a kind of blend of the salty seawater with the high humidity and the water vapor and very distinct dried food odors. What's fascinating about this is that I do not sense it anymore after living for so many years in Hong Kong. What was your memory, or how would you recount the aroma and scent of Hong Kong?
1: It's hard to say. It's a, like a blend in, so many smell together. But I think that time, there's no window, you know. So I can smell those kind of very complicated smells from the river. And also, I think is uh, because at that time, Shenzhen don't have that many shops. So mainly it's from Hong Kong, I still remember the people still uh, sold the food in the station. So you can still buy the food, hot food around. So maybe that is a mix of the hot food smell as well. Also, different people come from different cities and gather together there. So smell is like a blending. So I always, I cannot recall the smell, but sometimes when I stay in the place, and then we suddenly feel like, oh, that is smell from somewhere. For example, like when I was in Venice in one of the alley, I think that is in 1994, and I suddenly remind the smell from my hometown, but not really a fooding, It's from Fuzhou, my father's city. So and I feel like, oh, it's so familiar, you know. So if you ask me, Hong Kong smell, maybe I can find that when I smell that.
0: Listening to your stories of your childhood in China, it sounds like you have really fond memories. And I feel like you were, like most kids who grow up with nature, using your imagination and creativity to make and play with the things around you. When was it that you realized, I want to make a career out of this and become an artist?
1: For those years, as I remember, there's only about tree and the rock nearby the river. And also, I stay in the library storage most of the time. If I'm not playing outside, my mom will put me in the library storage. <laughs> that is a bookstore. It's a Chonghua bookstore. So because my mom knows the librarian, so I was always st- staying there. They got a, like a little book in my childhood, so I read all of them. So remember all oh, this classic Chinese story, and Monkey King, all this stuff. So I pretty admire Monkey King because I feel like I'm I'm the Monkey King, and I also feel like I can fly. <laughs> I That's why I was like a very naughty boy, uh, girl, but you know, fight with a boy. I always uh, won. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like uh, that is like a wild kid. And then maybe that is where is the creative from. I, I don't know. I feel like it should be. I forgot uh, when I start to draw. But my mom told me because of those little books, it's like a little comics. So sometimes I will copy that somewhere. Uh, my mom say I always copy that. I don't know. I forgot. So I also remember the hand. I can take the egg from the hand because my mom gave me the hand when she left to Hong Kong. And then she put me in her friend's home because I used to have a one egg per morning every day. So my mom just feel like ensure I have an egg every day. So she asked her friend to raise a hand for me that is what i remember well and i also remember my mom was a very respectful doctor because so many people come to my place with food with seafood with egg you know it's only food it's no money just food so i always have a lot of food at home
0: If you like this podcast, I have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact. The Last Supper is offered to you at zero cost. So please subscribe to this podcast and give it a star rating. Many thanks and let's continue. Let's go back to your work you had at Art Basel in Hong Kong this year because this is also the place where we met. If I heard this correctly, one really fascinating detail that you told me was that you never had sold anything of your work until this year's Art Basel show. Or was it a few months or a year before the show? I'm not entirely sure about the exact timeline, but this really came as a complete surprise. And before we talk about your work, you had at Art Basel. How did you end up showing your work there?
1: I say it's not after Art Basel; it's after my the show in Axel involved The first time is uh, Chris one invite me for the group show. There is a seven artist group show. And the first time I show there, and then next year they invite me for the solo show. So I only can sell the work is after I show it in Axel Van Wolf Gallery. That's it. So if you ask me how to go to the Basel, you know, this year, I would say also because of them, people, a curator came to my show and see the work and then they like the work. That's it. I just never have these opportunities to show to those uh, big curator or those collectors because I, n- I never really manage my art business. I only make art and I don't believe people will buy my art because in last two decades, no one really buy. Only my friends say, can I exchange? And I say, I have very much work already I don't need more the work not belonging to me so sometimes I even say no I feel like it's so bad because I'm really out of the space not surprised I think it's uh, too big my work is too big for them but I never know that in the world there is uh, so many collectors can buy the big work okay that is I don't know
0: Since this is a podcast, how would you describe the work that you had at Art Basel in Hong Kong this year?
1: You can imagine there's a giant uh, canopy made by the recycled fabric or those uh, sold by, you know, so many pieces and sold by the Women Worker Association. Those uh, workers were retired from the garment industry. So now they are working in the society as a mentor, you know, uh, to teach the housewife to do all these basic sewings, you know, for their own domestic decoration, everything. But now they are doing that for me. And then uh, all those stars, you know, because I tricked that kind of like a starry night. And then every star is made by those uh, workers, so represent they are shining in our city. Even the fabric is, is a found you know pick up from the trash, but they are shining now. It's a kind of like a regeneration, you know. Or I always like this uh, recycling the humans resources. I would say, and then the anchor anchor point under underground there is a six pack of the trolley is uh, frozen by the concrete. It's like a drunk trolleys, and then the title is called Trolley Parties, and then that is uh, what I imagine because you know in full-time, a lot of artists work in here. I'm the one, and I always uh, carry trolley to go. And I feel like uh, yeah, I'm coming, Basel, I'm coming now, you know, kind of like that. I'm you know, we are the workers uh, going to the to join this uh, Basel party, you know, after COVID. You know, before we just no one invited us to go. So now we are coming there. But we get drunk. So But also we talk about you know, people always ask me why you anchor part as uh trolleys. Why is a frozen kind of like frozen there? And then I say yeah, because uh, trolley, that kind of trolley, you can't find it in other cities. There is a very Hong Kong, and that is also represent Hong Kong people. We are very feasible to our environment. We are flexible to everything, honestly, just like me, you know. When you ask me how I can do that, I always say, yes, I can. So this kind of thing is very Hong Kong. Also, I'm trying to project the human characters to the trolley. Everyone represents one single person. And the uh, concrete is also very industrial. You see the industrial area here. A lot of uh, buildings still bare paint. Of course, now have more paint. And then it's a very strange. They paint several few years and then the color is so weird. It's, uh, usually it's like the paint that people don't want, you know. They would do that for the building paint. So I feel like uh, you know we used to have like a bare color, you know, the buildings that is a concrete only. So it also represent the labors uh, in the city. So those labors are the lady labors, you know, housewife in the in the sky. So those are male workers, you know, down there, kind of supporting each other. So I think it's a quite nice uh, story about Hong Kong, about this city, and. That is also, I told um, Basel, I say, because I never show in Basel, my work also is not that kind of like a sweet, bring-bring stuff. It's a very down-to-the-earth with a gravity. But in the same time, people see those work, they should know all those work is made by those art labor, artwork behind the studio. We should credit them. So that is somehow I convinced them to show the work. It's not pretty. It's not bring bring, but it got some meanings.
0: Especially in Hong Kong where residential real estate is very limited and where living space is very restricted. So collecting or having large artworks is very rare.
1: Yeah, and I only, you know, met some of the, uh, Hong Kong collectors before. And I also know most of the Gary dealers in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong Gary. They know me, I know them, but they never invite me to show. So what can I do? I even, sometimes I ask them, do you think my work can be sold? And then they say, your work is too big.
0: <laughs> That's so typical of Hong Kong. I heard this quite often of Hong Kong art professionals. I met Chris Wan last year, and he was on this podcast, I think it was episode 37, and we talked about his experience and journey of becoming a writer, curator, and art critic. How did he meet Chris?
1: Chris Wan is, uh, uh, I met him a few years back. He came to Hong Kong kind of like a researcher, and he wanted to know about Hong Kong, and for me he is a kind of like from another planet just like you honestly <laughs> and you know Hong Kong have uh, some style so he is not Hong Kong style he come to Hong Kong and then ask me out he search me maybe from the internet and ask me out and i think okay we have like a coffee chat and then for maybe one one and a half hour or two hour i forgot And then he came to my show most of the time. But he also came to all other artists opening all the show in these several years. So he knows everyone well. So I think that is someone I really want to talk to because I don't go to opening that often. So I always uh, get the news from him. That's why we know each other through the chat or, you know, just like that. Very simple.
0: Did you just mention you don't visit other shows? I know that your time is very limited, but is this something you deliberately avoid? Or is it just that you just don't like the crowds at the openings? I am really curious about why you won't attend other art spaces.
1: No, no, no. I try to go, but sometimes uh, I, I don't like crowd. actually. If I want to see, I will go there quietly. Not necessary to go to the opening, so that's me. I trying to see something I like, but now sometimes also because of my duty, because I'm the school head, I have to go to my uh, graduate uh, <laughs> show sometimes as well. Yeah, it's not trying to avoid to see other people. Is just because I don't like crowd. You know, sometimes I go. Also, maybe because I don't see people for so long. I want to see people, then I go.
0: (laughs) Another subject we can discuss is the Hong Kong Art School, of which you are the academic head. What can you say about this role and how did you get involved with the Hong Kong Art School here in Hong Kong?
1: In the first beginning, just for, you know, got a better position in the art making because you get the money, the higher salary, I mean hourly pay and also you have the freedom to choose what to teach or not to teach. So that's why I work in part-time in school since 2002. And I always just a part-time there. And uh, I start my full-time maybe from 2008 and then for a few years. And then I also turn to the part-time again. And I only become the full-time five years ago. 2004.5 years ago. Yeah, around that. And uh, because, um, yeah, being invited, you know, for this academic head and then trying to I really trying to work something for the school. Yeah, want to make a little bit changes. And uh, so I take up this job. And it's not about ambitious or not. I just felt like some duty I have to fulfill. I want to do something good for the students, for the next generation. Uh, that is also because I never pay my school fee when I study. So that's why I'm trying to do something good to the society for that reason.
0: I think you briefly mentioned changes that you wanted or were planning to make at the Hong Kong Art School. What were those changes that you were referring to?
1: I think you see, okay, that is not only my contribution. There is a lot of people's contribution. I try to support my colleagues to do their own art achievement as well. And then also I encourage people to, at least academic staff, to work in their own art career. I believe good artists also could be a good art educator, you know, in some way. And also we share a lot of the teaching experience every week. So trying to make it regularly and also encourage our alumni to come out to talk because that is a very important, not just artists to, I mean, the art teachers to, to talk. Alumni is very important to our school. So you, now you can see the alumni network set up for Hong Kong Art School. There is only one active alumni network among the, all these universities. And they are very active and very successful, I would say, because uh, they have their own groups, uh, different groups, different like art space also contribute back to the art society. They are not only served for our alumni, they also serve for other graduates. So but people, we are very proud of them. So they are Hong Kong Art School Alumni Network. And so people gradually felt like, oh our school doing so much better, you know, than other schools. So I now I heard from all those uh, graduates. So I'm very happy with that because uh, we are private school. We don't get the government's fund, but we are running well. Even we are like a very, very small school, very limited resources. But we're trying to give every sense to the alumni, to the graduates, to the students. That is uh, what we are doing. So it's not me. It's like a whole team is doing that.
0: The people I've spoken with in art education in Hong Kong have mentioned that there is an increased interest in the arts in terms of attendance and new students. Have you noticed this as well?
1: Yes, a lot of students choose painting as a major. And I'm teaching in the sculpture area. Not many students. I feel like, okay, that's good. I run the sculpture major for I think maybe 13 years around that and then uh, I remember I stopped to get the uh, major students in 10th year because not many students graduate and I feel like I need to take a break for them at least in the market for them to work. I Sometimes I feel good in Hong Kong not many sculptor and not many Sculptor can rely, you know, making sculpture to survive. Of course, I'm not talking about a commercial one. Commercial ones sometimes they are even not the sculptor. They are just designer or, you know, from other area. They got the public commissions. But not many people graduate from sculpture major and work in sculpture. So I think that is fine. It's not necessary to work in traditional sculpture, but can work in other media as well. So some of them, they work in the multimedia and also, you know, some of them become the very professional technician as well, you know, because they know so many mediums for, and then work for the other artists. And uh, the coming year is another new sculpture major student graduate this July. I can't say everyone is good. I always say, maybe just one you know a month all the year, okay, because no other sculptors graduate from other institutions anyway, so my school have those, and then maybe one can be a future sculptor, so that's also good we don't maybe the market don't need that many sculptors, so more painters come out from our school and also very success and uh, also exhibit in many galleries now they are all making money on that, but it's also sometimes I for example, like uh, before we we're trying to organize a talk about is that the only choice? Go to the market or we have other choice So those topics, I will urge my colleagues you know talk about that with other alumni and share what is possibilities ca- they can do in the future, not just only go to
0: the market. What other options or choices do artists in Hong Kong have?
1: I think so many options. I don't think that it's options, it's about your life choice. People study art, but not necessarily to be an artist. It doesn't matter. They can do something else, but they have this art in mind. And if people really want to take that as a career, it doesn't necessarily to be an artist. You can be, even for you, you know, you, what you are doing now, I think that is a good. You have the creative idea, so you can do whatever you want. It's not about option A, uh, teacher, option two, <laughs> you know, teacher. It, it's it's not like that. You can have so many choice. It's your life choice. It's not the career, I mean, it's not kind of like a, your major design, your career, is not like that.
0: As an art educator, you bear a lot of responsibility for guiding a new generation of artistic professionals. What do you hope that students take away and develop from studying at the Hong Kong Art School?
1: I think problem solving is main thing they have to manage. Because uh, we have so many mediums you have to work with. But if you want to follow traditions, you have uh, tons of the, the video you can look up and then you can go to study in different courses. But I think there is it's just a fixed access of, you know, studying art. But, I think feasibility is somehow is most important. It just keeps you to explore something new and you dare to challenge something never happened before and you, you feel like, oh, maybe I can make it happen. So that is a kind of that kind of drive to make you active in creativity. So I think creativity is happens because of the limitation. We always have the boundaries and you always want to jump out from this boundary or you want to push this boundary. So that is what you get when you are studying art because teachers always encourage you to try the boundaries or to push the boundary. And also it's about the possibility. You always think it's possible to make it. We always say you can make it. It's possible. Maybe you try another way, not the strict way. If you want to break this wall, it's not only one way, just use hammer to crush it, but you can find other way to make that wall collapse. So that is what we encourage the student to think. That is also my practice in so many years, making the giant work in this small studio. So that is my challenge, but I'm very happy. So I always share my experience with them. So they willing to challenge their own limitation. I think that is very important.
0: What can you say about your journey as an artist? How you developed your current body of work and the various mediums you have used over the years?
1: Mm, Yeah, I studied Chinese calligraphy before. And then Chinese landscaping thing. And it's, uh, everything's on paper. And then I trying to make something more challenge to the traditional. So I reverse the writing. So like uh, use the ink. Usually people uh, use the ink to write a character. So I reversed it. I draw the boundary. So and then I kind of like a challenge my, uh, to my teacher. And then I gradually felt like oh, maybe I can do something else with ink So and then do the Chinese uh, rock uh, rubbing. And then because of making those uh, the mould and I just self-studied the wood carving and then make it bigger, you know, gradually bigger, bigger, bigger. So everything, you know, just by my own drive. Never have someone to tell me you have to do this and that. So... Even I studied in school, but I felt like it's like a self-talk as well. <laughs> and also I learned most is after graduation. I studied four years BA in Chinese U, and then two years MFA there, and then another one year in the education department also in Chinese U. So I studied seven years in Chinese U. And then... I have my first residency in uh, New Zealand and keep going. And then I felt like, uh, oh, I learn more when I going out. So after graduate, maybe around 10 years after, then I first time really reach the core of contemporary art <laughs> as New York. I finally, I be there is when I was like Two thousand seven. So you can imagine, I study in year one in Chinese year. That is nineteen ninety three. So that is so many years later, and then I feel like now I can work totally freely. I don't, I don't really care about who is talking about if I'm not the artist. I don't care. Before I, I do care. You know, I do care if the people think I'm not the artist. But after 2007, I don't care.
0: You were in New Zealand for a residency and you've lived and worked in New York as well. What was your experience like in New York?
1: I'm like an idiot, I feel like. The first month, I tried to see all the show, all the galleries in the Chelsea area. Every day, I... Wake up very early, uh, but they also open late anyway. So I spent my whole day there. So it's uh, from noon to, to late. And then after one month, I was like very desperate because I felt like I cannot be a successful artist. That time I was granted ACC scholarship, fellowship there. And I also got the Urban Glass Fellowship. So, and then also got the Canada's uh, three Museums uh, invitation. So, the first month, I was already very sad because I felt like I cannot be the artist like that. You know, most of the work I saw is Gary work. You know, very neat, tidy, even the sculpture. You have to be giant. It's like a giant 10 times than what I'm working now. And then also, they have a new technology, but I'm like a tech idiot. And then also, I have to be very smart to give a like a smart idea. And I feel like I don't study well, you know, in all the theories, everything. I was so desperate. I feel like maybe that is the end of my art journey. So one day, I went to a restaurant, and then because also trying to save something, and then I went to like a cheap uh, Chinese uh, fast food restaurant that is almost like uh, six or seven in the evening and then there is the lunch time I was sitting there because was so tired as well I was sitting there and uh, watch around I feel like oh interesting the people there they speak in Fujianese that is my my father's uh, language and then I feel like, hmm, this is so familiar. There is a home language, you know. So the next day I went there again and uh, I speak in Fujian. Like uh, this is uh, a Fuzhou dialect, and then they are very surprised. They are also very nice to say, "Oh, you are Fujin- uh, Fuzhou, you are And then I say, "Yes, and, you know, I come here, you know, for the art study, you know, and I'm an artist." And they were like, mm, "Don't kidding, you know, Fuzhou people would never become the artists, you know." <laughs> and then, uh, they say, "You must be a liar, you know." And I say, "I really you're an artist." And then and they was like, mm, "No, no, no. If you show in Chelsea, I will believe." So that is a really just a joke, you know, he said, if you're showing Chelsea, I will believe you're an artist, and then I felt like, okay, if I really show in uh, Chelsea, we can make a bet, so if I really make in Chelsea, and um, have a show in Chelsea, I will put one of the work here, it's he okay, and then say, there was like, oh, well, let's see, let's see, well, this is like a, the joke start, and um then I have something to do, you know, in the next month. <laughs> I try to ask the friends around if I can have the show in Chelsea. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then I, yeah, I start to talk to the people. And uh, finally I convince the uh, people and then I pretend that someone's a very important guest in one of the opening. I talked to the very important Chinese artist at that time. is Xu Bing. I sat next to him, and people think I'm very important. So people come to me <laughs> and invite me to the show and come to my studio to see my work and then invite me for the uh, summer group show.
0: How did you meet Xu Bing?
1: I was uh, Xu Bing's assistant when she in Hong Kong. I'm his uh, big fan since, uh, since I was very young. I mean... I heard of his name from my teacher uh, when I'm studying in university. I think that is uh, 1995.
0: There's a bit of background noise because I think they are closing the metal gate next door. But would you say you are a competitive person because this bet you made in New York motivated you and gave you that purpose to create art?
1: Yeah, that is me. That's why I say I like challenge. if you don't give me challenge, I will just go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know but also interesting, you know this is a, like if i I never feel interested to have the competitions with my art people. I like the challenge from outside, for example, I never join any competitions i mean art competitions, even never apply for any artist residency. So I always say I'm kind of like sitting here and work, I mean, work my art, in my art. I always believe good art can tell who you are. So, and I don't like the panel system. I feel like I, why I should be judged by some of the people. Especially when the jury don't know you, only from the paper, I feel like they are not really knowing me. I just don't believe that system. You know, sometimes the government invite me to be the um, for the Lenten competition or something. I go to every everyone to say, I really don't want to give the prize because I feel like every one of you should get the prize anyway. So and then they were so nervous <laughs> when the panel was saying that. <laughs> yeah, I don't honestly. I don't like to join all these uh, prize things I like to be nominated I like to be uh, selected I like to be invited I feel it's a more respect and then there is also I feel art should be you know artist should be but now you know everyone told me you are wrong you know Jaffa you should go to you know join the competition you should go to apply something but I still kind of lay back off doing that and um Now I feel like, okay, if my schedule is full, so I will just do my own work first.
0: (laughs) Now let's talk about your practice and routines as well because you have a full-time role as the academic head at the Hong Kong Art School while also working on your personal work, which must be incredibly tough because I know when people work full-time in Hong Kong, it is not your typical nine-to-five job. It really is full on here. So explain to me how you plan your day and what your schedule looks like.
1: I wake up very early, seven, and I sleep very late <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that is how I work, and then non-stop. I no holiday, no kid, no boyfriend. Felden time for my family, for my mom, for my parents. That is the only time I share no more. So that's why you ask me why you don't go to opening and really I just don't have that much time. I always squeeze the time very very pack my time like all the meetings I pack them in one day or teaching I pack them all from one day for like for Thursday I teach 9:30 to 6 p.m. and then I uh, sometimes I have the meetings uh, right after Zoom or maybe and then sometimes, uh, I think in some of the semester, I will request, could you put uh, another course on the same day? So 9.30 to 6 and then 7 to 10. And then I back home already like uh, midnight. And then I start to reply email. Or on the way, you know, during the commute, so I reply the
0: email. So when you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing or routine you have?
1: I wake up always by my cat, <laughs> then the first thing is to uh, feed the cat first, and then I make tea for myself or coffee for my breakfast. Actually, I spend time for that first w- one hour for my coffee or tea, and then to see anyone's email I haven't replied yet. You know, sometimes uh, you know back home too late, and then not enough time to reply all the emails, so I will leave it for the morning. And then think about my whole schedule if I miss anything. For that, the first one hour, I will do that. And then already need to prepare to work. But sometimes I will spend like little time for my body exercise, maybe half hour because being a sculptor really needs the physical strong in moving all the wood and concrete. But sometimes uh, I will leave, uh, if I don't move for too long, I will always uh, leave my Sunday for one hour dancing. That is uh, how I do my physical exercise. So, But routines, uh, daily routine is uh, quite similar. It's like uh, wake up and then go to work. If I'm not teaching outside, I will start to reply all the email, writing, everything. If not, if, uh, for example, like working for my solution and always I'm in this studio, it's before nine, I will be here, start to work. And then work sometimes uh, till the evening, around 9 or 10, or sometimes uh, till too late. So that is uh, like if I'm pushing myself to work. But for a full-time job, I teach, and then also I have to attend the meetings for the planning, management, and things. I always put them in one particular day, so do everything, and then teach in another two full days. Full days means not eight hours, okay? Full day means as 20 hours.
0: <laughs> That's Pretty tense, Jaffa, and the unfortunate reality is that these working hours aren't so uncommon here in Hong Kong. To follow the schedule, you need to be highly organized, and you appear to be planning your schedule in detail or very meticulously. When you work on your art, what is the role of unpredictability or impulsiveness? What is the role of planning or not planning in your art?
1: Mainly is it's a planning the schedule. For example, if uh, I need to work with a women worker association, I have to ask their schedule. For example, like when I work in Basel, I have like a 2 days uh, morning visit there. So 9 a.m. and uh, Tuesday or Friday morning, I will be there for the whole morning uh, to see all the work and talk about that. That is a kind of very scheduled planning for this collaborative work. For the planning, people thought I would have very, like, because all the work is giant, so people thought I would have very detailed drawing, but actually it's not. If that is a work by myself or the collaborators here, we always uh, kind of like work step by step. <laughs> I would tell them I would like to finish this stage by this day. So because uh, my welder also there. It's very convenient as well, so I just go down to see how's the work, and uh, if I teach till to, to very late, and then because he's uh, living nearby, so and then I will see him in the late night, and then let me see the work, and then I say okay, so because uh, next day I need to go to teach very early, so and then I I won't see you in the morning, but. This is a good, and maybe you can do something more. And then that is a two-day schedule already for him. And then I will come another day to visit him. You know, Even he is my neighbor, I, d- I can't see them too often because I teach at 9.30. That means I have to leave this building at 8 a.m.
0: When I listen to you and I read between the lines, your central themes, concepts, and research you do all done by yourself, and of course in your own head. Whereas with the execution of some of these ideas that you cannot make yourself, you have artisans and craftsmen helping you.
1: Mm, not exactly, because uh, welding and sewing is uh, not my best, I mean, craft. I mean, I am work in wood. I still work in my wood, all the wood. So, that's why the studio is still active, and also, I like to do concrete now. You know, it's very similar to the wood because it's about carving. Uh, not many people uh, in the town know the, how to do the carving nowadays, and doing these molding things. So that is the only thing I can, I have to do in my own. So that means if I want to do a show wood welding and uh, so uh, fabric so I will do one third of it however the welder only weld he don't polish he don't do the all the post production so that means all the sanding all this colored uh, patina, all I have to do that and uh, also for the fabric worker so all this color patterns you know all this uh, composition i have to do that by myself so you know, like uh, in the huge work i mean the giant artwork i think i finished half of them through me of course they helped another
0: half mm-hmm. Let's go back to your very first show you had at Axel for Ford in Hong Kong. Describe to me what kind of work you had in the gallery and what this work was about. The
1: work is a combining two stage, I would say. Um, half of them is uh, from my previous work and then another half is my latest work. And then it combine all different medias from wood, stainless steel, fabric, and also even the fine object. And then, from the technique wise, you can see so many craftsmen as well, like uh, casting, molding, going, and also hammering, you know, joining and sound work, light work, you know, all the stuff. That is somehow they trying to show who am I, and also my preference of the installation. I told them I don't want to show single piece of work without order because I'm still like Chinese landscape painter. I'm a hand-roll painter, I would say. I like to create a journey. So the whole exhibition, just like a journey, I try to introduce uh, to the audience who am I and what is my perspective of the world. And about... That time, in that particular moment after COVID, when Hong Kong is going to somewhere, we don't know. So that is like, uh, the name is called Chasing for Elusive Nature. Just don't know where you are going, but maybe it's a new start. Also because that is my new start. You know, for me, it's a new start. That is also my question or my doubt that time can I be success to work with this I would say very, very good Gary again, you know. Your first role have to be very serious. And I was doubt of myself. I even I was so nervous and I I remember the first VIP day I was uh, holding Mariko's uh, hand. I said, "Oh, Mariko, I just don't want to go up. I I just don't know, you know what what is that? You know how the people react to the show." And then I just not that confident. When the first people come, they like it. Second, and then gradually, I feel like okay, finally the people not many critique. You know, not many. You know, at least people like to hang out there. Okay, that is a very important. Yeah that that is me you know uh the show is about how i because i i used a theme uh water from the beginning of the water and then I was, also have a research about the where is the coastal sport, not the coastal line, it's a coastal sport in Hong Kong. And also about disappeared craftsmanship, for example, like sand mold. Also about abundance objects. For example, you see the scholar rock, and then I reshaped that as the base of my sculpture. And yeah, also about... My feelings on so many friends uh, left Hong Kong, and uh, I being alone in Hong Kong, and what else I can do for Hong Kong. So that kind of so many, very complicated emotions uh, you know blend in together. People can see, see all the leaflet, uh, you know, all the story. I'm not very good to tell the story, but write to Caroline. she's very good to write about that. Sometimes I feel like I'm just an art maker. Sometimes I don't want to to know very clear before I make. Uh, for example, like a 500 rock. I don't know why I insist want to make it. Because I say monkey king waiting for 500 years for a master. And then I like the story. I, I really want to make the 500 rocks. And... They don't get it, you know. Even the Gary's owner, what are you going to do, you know, after the show, five hundred rocks? It's it's a big number. That's me. Somehow, I'm not very good planning of everything. But somehow, I'm the person I dare to take all the responsibility. I say, oh, if no one take that five hundred, I will take it all these uh, partitions uh, of this apartment here, the studio here, every time I build little part after every, my show. So you can see how many shows go through already. I even think about if this solo show, no one is going to take my work, I build another one. That is my life, you know. And then I don't have plan, but I do have little that people say very silly uh, insist, you know, for my art. Don't ask me why. I just feel like I need to do that in my in my life. I'm counting down my life now. I'm now I'm fifty. So another twenty years to go. That's it.
0: I'm sure and I believe you have more than twenty years to go, Jaffa, with the determination and energy levels you currently have. One thing you mentioned that I want to talk a little bit more about is your experience of art or the narrative of the journey, and especially during COVID, you said that you had many friends who left Hong Kong. These were experiences and emotions that were part of the work you had last year at uh, the gallery, Axel for Ford. What other strengths or influences were part of that very complex and challenging life journey you experienced?
1: I think it's about where is my art going? Now when the people look back, they always say, oh, oh, I, I can't believe, uh, you know, so many years ago you're already doing that. Maybe I always work, I always say walk too fast before the people doing that, before people understand what I'm doing. And um, I would say, I'm waiting for someone to understand me. And Monkey King is... Kind of me, you know, waiting for a master to understand me. Actually, I didn't count my years. And then people, you know, in, after interview, they say, oh, 22 years, you know. <laughs> and then I say, okay, 22 years is okay, because Monkey King wait for his master for 500 years. So I'm okay, I'm very lucky enough. So I think the whole thing is also about waiting, about my Personal waiting for, to see, to want to know my future. Also, kind of like, it's a hope, I would say. As a walking to the hope. You know, if that is a hope. So, uh, in the end of the exhibition, I make a scratch on the wall to find the nail, the mark of the nail, where the galleries do that for the painting before. And then I felt like I want to find out those marks and then gradually it become the clouds. And then most of the people think, oh, that is the best word of the show, you know. And I feel that, yeah, because I'm looking for something, uncertainty. But I'm trying to be honest to myself. I would say, I'm looking for the truth. And where will this truth go into? I don't know, because I feel like yeah, I do think about, you know, to ask the Gary to cut the wall in the beginning to the Gary manager. And they say, no, you know, we can't cut the wall, you know. And, uh, but I just keep that kind of hope. I keep saying that gradually before this piece without the title, because, it, you know, just happened. It's a kind of like a performative work when I just moving the Gary site so no name no title for this work gradually i asked uh, gary can i you know can i put the name in a catalog you know in the leaflet so and then they try to put them there and the last day almost like the last day and then the gary owner came and then after introductions of the whole show i still you know keep asking i think this war should be kid and then I said, this is uh, like the gift to the gallery because it's uh, like uh, the memories of uh, last three years, You, how many uh, paintings you hand in this wall. And the owner, Boris, is so generous. He said, yes, you are right. Of course, I'm going to take down the wall.
0: That is indeed incredibly generous of Boris Ford. I wonder if you are just extremely persistent and persuasive, or was it the combination of both generosity and kindness?
1: I don't know, it's silly, right? (laughs) Asking, because I'm grateful he did it. I I told him, I also told my students, I say, if you insist to do something, you might success in the end, you know? It's a very silly questions, but just keep asking. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You are a person who is very considerate about the materials you use and most of them you have found in your neighbourhood. Some are donated and other materials such as concrete you pour yourself as well. So I wonder when I look around your studio but also looking at your work, do you ever throw things away?
1: I I don't know how to slide. I have very difficulties about that. But now... um, I am thinking maybe everything can be art. <laughs> in my last solo show, in the end, I have to do that very quick. So and then I use because I sometimes I also I do cut wood. So those are remained. I try to store them as well. I never really throw them out. And then uh, I polish some of them for my solo show. Not, much, not many craft there, but just turn a little bit. I feel like they were trash here for ages. I just trying to see if they can make value being called as artwork. So and then I feel like maybe in the future is I trying to totally utilize all this old stuff trash in my studio to be the artwork. Also, uh, I don't collect things now. I used to buy a lot of wood antique. I mean, not very cheap one, but all of those are from the buildings. And then I collect quite a lot and I haven't totally utilized that. Now I think it's maybe next, next show I will do that. But not now. Now, now I already have an idea for the next coming show.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about your upcoming show later this year at Axel for Ford in Belgium. Do you already know what this will be and what else can you tell me about this upcoming exhibition?
1: My upcoming show in the end of the September, also in the Axel Vervoordt uh, in Belgium. So it's a big challenge. I went there in January and see the space. I was totally shocked. It's not about the size. It's about the surrounding. All this uh, giant master, Anachikapu, you know, all these people around me, you know, their work was set up, you know, nearby. And those people come to see their work and then they will drop by the gallery to see my work in the future. I just don't know what kind of things I should show. But I have so many other series can show. So I also felt like Maybe also blend in new and old work together for this solo. So for those who are European, they know who am I and know my practice. But I don't know. I'm not very Gary-driven people. I just feel like the whole show is another journey to show who am I. I also appreciate they don't really care about sold or not. <laughs> that is something I'm I'm happy with, you know. People say, you've been teaching for so long, you must know what kind of work can be sold. I, I say, I only have that kind of things, you know. That is my taste. If I got money, I will buy this, I'll buy that. But always not right, you know. Otherwise, uh, for so many years... I should be like a very successful investor in art, but I'm not. So I just hope people, you know, around me can help me to do other, I mean, the art business. Make sure it's not about I want a lot of money. It's about if I empty this studio, then I can work more. That is the main thing. And uh, also if a market or the collector accept me so I can do some more creative work The people trust you trust your taste trust your vision
0: it was a really enjoyable afternoon Jaffa and I'm going to end this podcast with asking you who would you invite for your last supper <sighs>
1: Honestly, I don't know. I still have 20 years to go. And I don't know if the people I love will still be with me in the end of that. I think maybe being alone is not a bad choice. I don't have preference. I always have my separate alone. (laughs) Because I think most important people is my mom. I don't know if she will be with me that time because uh, I'm from her belly if I die I want to go back there I just want to see my mom yeah that's it
0: (laughs) many thanks for tidying up your studio and taking the time today to sit down with me Jaffa All the best with your upcoming show.
1: Thank you for that.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Last Supper with artist and art educator Jeff Alam. If you like the show about art in Asia, give us a rating and subscribe to this podcast to be notified of the next episodes. Please check the additional information in this podcast description and before you go, The Last Supper podcast supports the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association, a member-based non-profit organization of established local and international art galleries in Hong Kong.